You're listening to the Rough Draft Podcast, Season 10, Episode 3, where Katie sits down and talks with York College's visiting writer, Melissa Falavino, about her book, Tomboyland. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rough Draft Podcast. I'm your host today, Katie Putnam. And today we have a special visiting writer, Melissa Falavino, who wrote Tomboyland. Um, and so let's get started. <laughs> um, this is a pretty basic question, but a good one to start with. Um, how did you get into creative writing? You know, Have you done it a long time? Uh, yeah, it's been a really long time. Um, so I have been writing since I was a kid, um, but when I was in college, I went to college at the University of Wisconsin. Um, I was studying English, and I started taking some creative writing classes, and um, kind of quickly figured out that that's what I wanted to do. And especially um, when I first took a creative nonfiction class, which I I had no idea what that meant. Uh, you know, I was taking poetry and fiction, and then I was introduced to creative nonfiction, and suddenly like my head exploded and I was like this is super cool I had no idea what an essay could do what a personal essay could do how you could like marry research and interview and journalism with personal narrative um, so that really excited me so I've been doing it ever since basically um, <laughs> I started writing for an all weekly in Madison at the time which is like a weekly newspaper and I was doing um, features like about subcultures in the city and I was really into that kind of writing and then um, worked in publishing for a while and decided to go to grad school. So I moved to New York and went to graduate school, did an MFA in creative nonfiction writing. And basically have been working on the book ever since. <laughs> so it's been a long road but yeah. a uh, dogged one. <laughs> yeah that's so cool. It's definitely, um, I haven't had a lot of experience reading creative nonfiction but it's it's so different and really enjoyable. Um, kind of leads into another question I had, which is like, what do you think a book of creative nonfiction and memoir style type essays can like give or show to an audience that a different typed book would not? Great question. Um, so I think one of the most exciting things about creative nonfiction and particularly personal essay and personal narrative is that you get a really intimate look at somebody's life and their story and their experiences and you know, every kind of writing, creative writing at its best has the ability to um, reach people and connect with people and um, I don't know, just share experience and stories, but um, having that very personal lens, like I'm gonna open up my life to you and I'm gonna tell you about it and we're gonna talk about all the things that I've learned um, through my own experiences, I think can create a really unique um, sense of intimacy uh, with your reader. Um, and I think, you know, the goal, the ultimate goal, I think, with with all writing, but especially um, for me with, with creative nonfiction and personal writing is kind of uh, creating a bridge and the end goal being um, understanding and empathy. So um, I think that it has the power to really reach people and change people's understandings of, of other humans' lives and experiences and hopefully, you know, um, create that empathy. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting that. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> doing my job. <laughs> um, so and I'm going to get a little bit into the content of the book. Um, one of the quotes that jumped out to me is um, when you wrote, um, I wonder sometimes if I believed in God, would I still feel so afraid? Um, you know, I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school for like 12 years. Mm-hmm. That's definitely something that um, uh, I relate to. I don't I identify as like agnostic now. Mm-hmm. Um, so like today, like how do you identify with religion and like, what do you think religion does to those like who are struggling with the concept of like self individualization, like mm. identification? Mm-hmm. Another great question. <laughs> um, I mean, this is a question that I ask myself a lot, and I think it's one of those things that, like life and like identity and like um, so many things, it's constantly changing. Um, I don't ever see myself as being static in any way, and um, my beliefs change and my understandings change, and so. I was raised pretty uh, in a pretty religious household, not like intensely religious. I had a lot of autonomy to kind of figure out my own way, but my parents were both Catholic, raised Catholic, went to Catholic school, um, and I came from you know two sides of families that were extremely Catholic, you know, Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic, and um, my parents found themselves in Wisconsin, which is not a particularly Catholic yeah. <laughs> place, and um, they baptized me Catholic, and then I think they kind of had a realization, like my mom was like, I don't want her to have her knuckles wrapped with a ruler like I did, like, you know, they got put in coat closets, and it's, it wasn't really like that in my hometown, but they were kind of tired of Catholicism, so they converted to Lutheranism, which is not that different than Catholicism, but... It does have a, a, a different vibe, and so I was raised in, a, in an evangelical Lutheran church and, um, and went to a youth group, was really um, uh, sort of involved in a, in a youth group in my hometown, and it really defined the way that I thought of myself and my position in the world, and it, I think it helped me see some things really clearly, um, and it really helped me build an understanding of like what humans can do on Earth and like what we can be. And, how we should be to other people, but it also really complicated um, my sense of myself in ways that it turned out were pretty detrimental, and um, I couldn't reconcile religion as I had learned it with my um, burgeoning understanding of myself as a woman, as a feminist, as a queer person. and so I kind of just slowly extracted myself from, from the church and for a long time identified as an atheist. Like I was very much like, I don't believe in God. And then I kind of realized that that was sort of a knee-jerk response to leaving. You know, it was my way of leaving. I was like, if I'm going to leave, I have to leave fully, right? And, and, I, and it took me a long time to kind of realize that agnosticism is really where I land. Like, I don't know, and, and I can't claim to know. And part of that is... Um, you know, I, I've come to terms with that, um, but I think that, you know, our the way that people are raised in, in in various religions can really do that. They it it can help you figure out like how to live in ways that are I think really useful. Um, it can also, you know, at its best, um, create community and um, I think a sort of feeling of collective. But I never really had that <laughs> experience. I, I can see that that happens, you know, but I didn't really have that experience. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's a journey, you know, and I think that everybody kind of um, 
has their own journey when it comes to faith and um, that can take the form of a lot of different things, whether it's church or God or you know spiritualism in, in other ways. Um, I've got friends in New York who are like like into witchy stuff and, yeah. <laughs> um, and it, people who grew, were you know raised kind of evangelical and like found this new form of spiritualism so. I don't know. It's. Uh, I think when I was younger, I was like very much like you know, um, you know, anti anti religion, anti established religion, and I still don't think I would return to any sort of like established um, religion. But I, I do see the benefits of like finding your own path in spirituality for sure. Yeah, no, I absolutely also went through the staunch atheist. Yeah. Phase. Um, I have friends who, from my Catholic school days, who like one of them is now in the process of converting to Judaism. Mm. Like she got in touch with like some ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um, other ones who again are also like witchy. It's definitely it's a community thing. And um, like Catholic school, it, um, some of my friends we like to say that we're culturally Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, because it does, it gives you a way of looking at the world that you're never going to lose. Right. And some um, of those, like, there's some, I'm finding as I get older, there's actually some comfort in some of the ritual that is associated with um, religion and Catholicism, you know? Like, I recently started driving again after a long time of not driving, and my dad always used to... Um, have a St. Christopher's medal hanging in his car, and I was like, oh, I should get a St. Christopher's medal to hang in my car to protect me on the road. And like, yeah. Just that my brain went there, even though I don't identify as Catholic and I don't identify really as religious, I, like, I find comfort in, like, you know, in, in those, like, old rituals yeah. and traditions sometimes, too. Yeah, you ever, like, lose something, and it's like, pray to St. Anthony. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's I'll like, you it never up. lose it. <laughs> um, yeah, um, so here's another question. Um, you mentioned a couple times the um, like the stereotypes and misconceptions of bisexuality that sort of imply that bisexual people are like more obsessed with sex and the binary. And um, how do you think that like social media or media representations have contributed to that myth? Oh, good question. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that. A, a long time ago, and, and actually not so long ago, like bisexuals were kind of a punchline, you know, in, in um, mainstream media, you know, like it was just shorthand for some usually woman, usually like femme presenting woman who was kind of like sowing her oats and experimenting and liked sex. And, yeah. and it had this kind of denigration, you know, like, like, oh, to be a woman who likes sex must be, you know, crazy or... Um, somehow uh, degenerate or whatever. Um, but I think one of the cool things that I've seen in the last like 10, 15 years is that media, particularly social media, has, at least in my corner of it, I, I'm really like curatorial about who I follow and what I see. So I don't see the trolls on social media ever unless I go looking, which is a yeah. terrible idea. Don't ever do that. But I do it sometimes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, like, there's this very rich sort of, like, celebratory um, community and communities on social media that, you know, I have a ton of people that I follow on Twitter who have become friends um, who, you know, are in, you know, um, identify as queer, you know, in, in some in some way. And, um, 
and I feel like there's a specific celebration of bisexuality now and a much more um, inclusive understanding of what that means and what that looks like. And, you know, I certainly still get, like, assumptions made about me based on how I look, particularly, you know, um, how I present in the world. People make assumptions about my sexuality and, you know, people are going to continue to do that. But I think that, um, I don't know, I, I do think that there can be some you can find some community um, in digital spaces that maybe we couldn't, we didn't have access to in, in the past. I certainly didn't like when I was in college, you know, social media was just like a baby then, you know, Facebook was just like new on the scene. And, um, you know, I write about this in the book that like that actually was this um, awakening for me because Facebook had this like section where you put yes. who you're interested in. It was like <laughs> men, women, men and women and I was like oh (laughs) that's an option um so and like I write in the book it seems kind of limited now you know in the sort of expansive understanding of sexuality and gender that that so many of us have and embrace um but back then it was like super liberating yeah to find that yeah I I mentioned to you before we started recording that I too am bisexual um and that part of the book with the Facebook thing was kind of funny to me too because um I mean, for me, it wasn't when I was making it for the first time, but it was like sort of like a little coming out moment on Facebook of yes. changing it to men and women. Mm-hmm. It's still what it is, I believe. They don't have it expanded. Yeah, I don't you think. Yeah, they expand it. But yeah, um, but, yeah. Oh, something else to say. Oh, um, yeah, it's like social media. I definitely, you know, that's that's where I learned what bisexual was mm-hmm. like. And I think it's true, like what you say in the book, like, um, people make assumptions that like, oh, bisexual women are all femme presenting, mm-hmm. that you know, you can't be gender non-conforming. Mm-hmm. And I think the the more wider, better representations we get in the media and the more like positive things in social media, like the Bisexual Awareness Week that it is, mm-hmm. officially the day is uh, September 23rd, um, you know, spread more awareness of what it means to be bisexual and that it is a much wider definition than people think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, you know, I'm, I, I have some friends who, I'm not on TikTok, but I have friends who are, and they're like, bisexual TikTok is, like, the best <laughs> place ever. They're always trying to convince me to get on TikTok just for bisexual TikTok. And I'm like, I have a limit to how much yeah. uh, social media I can engage in. And, like, I'm a geriatric millennial, so I feel like my cutoff is Instagram. Like, I can't get any That's further fair. than that. Yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, I'm a, I'm a cusper myself, nice. millennial Gen Z cusper. Yeah. Anyway, um, another thing is something you talk about is like pronoun identification and like you identify with she, her, but it's sort of like a weird zone. Um, and uh, one thing that's interesting is like you don't want to um, like completely detract from the woman like part. And uh, I was wondering like how do you think it like – I don't know how to word this. <laughs> um, like the discrimination against women, how it affects then um, dealing with feelings of gender, and maybe if you know you want to be more non-binary, but you don't want to, you know, you feel like you're contributing to discrimination against women, even mm. though you're not. It's mm. like, how do you deal with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I think that it's obviously different for everybody, but for me, the question of womanhood has has always ch- been changed it's always changing yeah. and um 
I, I feel like y- even since I was young, I've been kind of like redefining for myself what womanhood means, whether that's like not getting married, not having children, you know, these very specific things that I learned very early, like women do, uh, you know, stay at home and take care of the kids, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, to now, which is like, I, I still have that connection with the word woman. I still feel sometimes like uh, I identify as a woman. And then other times I'm like, well, I don't actually know why. And I don't know why I hang on to that. And I don't know if it's important for me to hang on to that or not. Um, and just sort of an example of the way that like identities shift and change. Like just, I mean, even since the book come out, came out, I have more readily embrace they too. So when people okay. ask pronouns, I say she or they, you know, because um, actually I like both and I also really want to normalize the use of they. Right, um, yeah. And, you know, as a teacher, I walk into spaces every day with, um, you know, kids who are uh, and, and young, young adults uh, who are you know, really struggling with gender identity. And so to like walk into a space and be like, hi, I'm Melissa, she, they, I think just like shows them like, this is a space for you to be right. able to do that too, if you, if you want to. And that's really important to me um, because I didn't have those spaces when I was younger. And um, so if I can sort of be that model for younger people and, you know, it's easy to say like, <laughs> I, every, I, oh yeah, everybody's aware of that now, you know, because of social media and especially if you do have sort of have, have created a bubble for yourself, which is a nice safe bubble, uh, can be great in some ways to be like, oh no, th- thoughts are changing, uh, perspectives are shifting. Um, you know, all it takes is being in different parts of the country to be like, oh no, it's actually not super safe in a lot of places yeah. to be a lot of different people. Um, so I don't know, I think that it's it's useful to just kind of like, meditate on it and spend time and interrogate your own kind of motivations and desires and um and sometimes like i said i feel really connected to that word woman and to the she her and like i feel like this extension of the women in my family and that feels very important to me yeah um and then at other times it feels less important when i get intellectual about it when i'm (laughs) like oh well it's just a construct so it doesn't matter you know but then i'm like well it mattered to them and i think you know part of why it matters to me is because of the, the women that came before me and um so I don't know I don't know if that answers your question at all but it's a it's a it's a very fluid question that I am asking yeah. myself all the time no yeah it's definitely um I agree relatable actually mm-hmm. and you mentioned something that reminded me of another question that I had which is that do you feel like there is a disconnect or some kind of difference between LGBT people who grew up in the Midwest or other rural areas and LGBT people who grew up like the East Coast, urban, more liberal, typically areas. For sure. Yeah. (laughs) 1,000%. Like the access that um, some of my friends who grew up in New York City, for instance, had to just like people (laughs) of other genders, sexualities, races, ethnicities, like you, when you grow up in a diverse place um, and a, in a truly diverse place, um, it's like, yeah, that's they're people from every different experience and and background. Um, it's just it's just much more. That's your normal life, you know. And in in so many parts of the Midwest, especially rural, the rural parts, it's just like so 
often where I came from, you know, and actually kind of where I'm living now. Um, super white, uh, super hetero, um, you know, it's, it's middle class, you know, um, and it, it, it's just like, if you grow up in that space and you're not, you don't see people, you know, that, that are different from you, it's like, I don't know, it, it's like a completely different upbringing and it's a completely different um, education. And um, even just moving, r really recently I moved from Brooklyn to, to um, central Ohio, just outside Columbus. And it, it's, it's wild, it's different. wild, yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, Columbus is a city, you know? Like mm -hmm. that's, there's certainly, there will be people there, like this, will, this won't be that different. And it's totally different. It, it's still very much, it has kind of like a ruralish um, vibe to it. Uh, my partner is a high school teacher and like kids still use gay as an insult all yeah. the time, you know? And like, that's wild to me, you know, that that still happens and um, it's good to be reminded of it. Yeah, know? there's like a misconception sometimes of people who have stayed in just like a liberal bubble where they think that that doesn't happen anymore. Right, right. Um, and people will say like, you know, I've got some conservative people in my family and, you know, peripherally, and they're not all cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've, I've heard some people say, th like, say things like, well, why, you know, why do the gays need a parade? You know, literally yeah. still <laughs> saying things like that. And, and like the reasoning being like, well, everybody accepts gay people now. And it's like, if only. <laughs> You're right. They, they clearly don't, and all you need to do is step outside of uh, any sort of um, any bubble, <laughs> and you'll and you'll figure that out really really quickly. Yeah. Um. So, do you have any? I mean, you can't touch on this, but any advice or mechanisms that helped you feel comfortable with like who you are, not only in a, a queer sense, but well, I guess mostly, but <laughs> um, like, because like the name of the book, like Tomboy Land and how um, you're just feeling comfortable with who you are and your identity, I guess. Yeah, um, I guess, man, advice. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, I try to dole it out very sparingly, but, um, you know, because it took me a long, it took me a really long time to get to where I am now. And I don't even feel now like I'm 100% comfortable in, you know, my skin and my identity all the time, you know, there are times that I feel um, too visible or invisible or um, uncertain, you know, that I don't think that that ever stops as, as long as we're kind of doing the work of like being present in our own lives, like I, I think that that will always be an experience, you know, um, but I think the biggest thing for me in the journey of of coming to just feel feel like you know ninety percent good in my skin, you know, um, and and comfortable where I'm at um, and good where I'm at, you know, is was finding community and I didn't I didn't have that, you know, I didn't I didn't have that growing up um, and so much so that I, I wasn't even aware of some of these identity questions when I was growing up. I was just you know, on the straight and narrow like everybody else. Um, so it wasn't until kind of like late college, after college, that I started understanding that I was veering off a path, you know, that everybody that I knew was on. Um, and so 
I found I found a community in it. For for me, that was through roller derby. I played um, roller derby in in my twenties, and um, I just met a bunch of people who were super weird and radical and very queer um, in many different ways, and you know mostly who identified as women, but also non-binary people, some trans people. And like, that was revolutionary to me. I, f I found them, we became really good friends really quickly, like you do in a sport, you know, or like a, you know, in any sort of community like that where you're thrown together. Um, and I just felt immediately okay, you know, like I was at home in a way that I had never felt before. Like I was being seen in a way that I had never been seen before. and those people are still, you know, my closest friends, even though we live in different states. Um, but that finding community, I think is super important. And sometimes it takes a while, but um, when you get there, it's like, oh, I'm home. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely agree. Um, so do you have any, uh, getting back to some of the writing stuff, I guess, yeah. um, any like recommendations for getting into creative nonfiction is definitely a thing that a lot of people don't realize exist. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the biggest piece of advice is to read widely. Like, read, read, and read, and read, and read voraciously. <laughs> I mean, if, regardless of what kind of writing you want to write, you know, the, that that is that is the number one. Read a lot. Um, and so, if you're interested in creative nonfiction, read a lot of creative nonfiction and. Um, essay collections. There's so many out there. There's so many awesome books out there. Memoirs. Um, kind of cultural criticism that marries the two, um, sort of personal and kind of reportage. Um, yeah, I mean, I would just like Google best creative nonfiction <laughs> books of the past decade, and uh, so many will come up, and um, and that that's kind of the key. And then you you know, if the 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 more broadly you read, the 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 more likely you are to start to understand like what forms really excite you and what styles really excite you and what kind of experimentations are um, you you want to mess with you know formally or you know in terms of voice or subject um, so that's the thing read 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 right, I'll be doing that <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, so then your book Tomboyland available I'm gonna assume most bookstores Yep, bookstores, uh, wherever they sell books, they should be able to at least order it for you. Yep. Um, I also want to make a plug for a, a really great website called bookshop.org. Oh, yes, I'm a fan as you well. Know it. All right, cool. Yeah, an, an ethical option um, in, in the world of Amazon. All proceeds, uh, a portion of the proceeds go to independent bookstores, so support your local indie all the time if you can. Yes. All right, well, thank you for... Uh, giving your time to us here, um, talking and sharing your experiences. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This right. has been delightful. Yeah. Um, so that was Melissa Falvino, Tomboyland. Get it today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rough Draft Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Make sure to tune in next Monday where we sit down and talk about Disability Awareness Month. Also, if you're in the York area, be sure to stop by our table at First Friday in downtown New York this coming Friday, October 1st. We'll be right on Philadelphia Street out front of Market View Arts. Hope to see you there. Thanks again for listening.